If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM, let's create. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. We're delighted that you're listening to this podcast. If you enjoy it, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify and elsewhere. Please be kind enough to leave us a favorable review, too, if you like it. At the Journal's editorial page, we believe strongly in free expression, and each week on this podcast, we explore in depth and candor issues of topical interest. We speak in considerable depth to people who are leading figures in their field, practitioners, experts, commentators, to give us a better understanding of the big issues of our times. This week, I'm coming to you from London, where in what some may consider an entirely condign set of circumstances, I have finally contracted covid and am self-isolating. But as we've all discovered in the last two years, it's one of the virtues of modern technology that we can still be productive even when somewhat under the weather, thousands of miles from our place of work and locked in a spare bedroom as I am. So I'm delighted to say that the show goes on. And this week, my guest is the acclaimed novelist and commentator Lionel Shriver, an American who now lives in London. Lionel's the author of many novels, the latest of which is Should We Stay or Should We Go? an exploration of, among other things, ageing and end-of-life decisions. Most famous for her 2003 novel, We Need to Talk About Kevin, a narrative told in the voice of the mother of a teenager who commits mass murder in a school. The story resonated widely with readers and a wider public that's become almost inured to such horrors in the last 25 years. Her insights into the mental health of troubled kids and the challenges that parents face have become only tragically too important in an age when such violence seems almost epidemic. She's also a very widely read commentator on cultural and political issues and is, among other things, a contributor to the London Spectator. Lionel Shriver joins me now. Lionel, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's nice to talk to another American. <laughs> yes, you and I have sort of, uh, rather more successfully than I have, but we've lived sort of slightly parallel or rather reflected lives. I'm a Brit who now lives in America. You're an American who now lives in, in London. And so perhaps we can have some observations from each side of the Atlantic about each other's home country. But I want to start with an apology because I know you don't want to always be seen as the sort of go-to person that everybody in the media speaks to when there is another horrific mass killing in a school because you are rightly known for many, many other things than that. But of course, your novel, 2003 novel that I mentioned, We Need to Talk About Kevin, was a great success. Everybody who's read it agrees, a remarkable insight into the challenges that the parents face, but obviously in the, the mental health conditions that some of these very, very troubled teenagers find themselves in. So here we are a week after the horrific shooting in Uvalde, Texas last week. And so I do, well, I want to get on quickly to other things and to the broader cultural issues I want to discuss with you. I do want to start with that. Uh, one of the things I find as a Brit who lives in America, I often try to explain to a British audience, who like, for want of a better word, gun culture. A lot of people outside the US think it's just so simple. Why do they all have these guns? There are 400 million guns in America. Just take most of them away or some of them away. Do what Britain did after couple of horrific massacres in Britain, do what Australia did and just get rid of them. I try to explain, not always very successfully, that it's much more complicated than that. Before I want to talk about the issue of mental health and teenagers, 
Again, as an American who lives in, in Britain, have you come to see the Second Amendment, the, the reason that Americans hold guns, the very understandable reasons that Americans have, which are so inexplicable to others? Have you come to see that in a different way? Do you understand? Have you come to a different way of looking at the prevalence of what we could call gun culture in America? Well, in, in an odd way, I think I may have become more sympathetic with gun owners and defendants of the Second Amendment just because I have been forced to explain it to the British over and over again. So it has required a, an imaginative leap on my part. I mean, I've never been a gun owner, never aspired to be a gun owner, although I did in my 2016 novel, The Mandibles, end up resorting to giving one of my characters a gun because it was the only way he was going to protect himself in civil disorder. I think I also have some sympathy with the way a lot of actions and policies on the left that only feed Republicans a sense of insecurity and even physical danger, the chaos at the southern border. Anyone who lives near the, near the border uh, is constantly dealing with people coming across their property. You don't know who they are whether they're criminals or not, what their intent is. All the violence after the George Floyd killing, the arson and looting and the rise in homicide in general, which Democrats are not prosecuting. I can see why it might seem as if nobody else is going to help you. You can't count on the police that are being defunded. And if you're going to protect yourself and your family, you need the means of doing so. And I also think there's, it thrown into the mix is a strong sense of identity, which most Democrats don't share. I mean, this is a point in which the two halves of the United States simply don't communicate. I mean, I still don't want a gun, but I am able to think myself into circumstances in which I might break down and get one. Part of it, isn't it, also, Lionel, and again, this is always hard to explain to outsiders, the nature of the relationship between the individual citizen and government. I, I think, you know, in the United States, and again, you can argue about the Second Amendment and it has been interpreted in different ways, but Second Amendment, very clear, it's very high up in the in the Bill of Rights. It's the Second Amendment after all. And it does, I think, capture, even, you know, 230 years on, it does still capture the sense of, if you like, kind of independence that Americans still want to maintain and the slight sense, more than the slight sense, of mistrust of government and of potential government and actual government overreach, which doesn't seem to be very widely shared elsewhere. I agree. That's one of the big differences between Europeans and Americans, and especially Americans on the right. Europeans tend to look to government to solve all their problems, unrealistically. Whereas for many Americans, government is the problem. And government is the main entity you need to defend yourself against. I think the point of naivete on the part of a lot of gun owners is where they imagine that even owning more than one gun is realistically a defense against a federal government that is armed to the teeth. I mean, if gun owners imagine that they are protecting themselves against tyranny, then they're kidding themselves because they are outgunned, literally. 
And I suppose the logic is they really should be equipping themselves with howitzers and armoured personnel carriers for their personal use if they really want to defend themselves against it. Long-range artillery, just like in Ukraine. (laughs) Moving on to the issue of mental health again, in, in the sort of stale and sterile politics of America, whenever these incidents happen, we get an immediate sort of bifurcation. The Democrats all say it's all about guns. We've got to take away people's guns, gun control, and we've got to limit guns. Republicans all immediately go to the sort of mental health corner and say there is a problem with mental health. I mean, there's virtue on both sides, but I do want to talk particularly about this mental health. I mean, again, from your perspective as an American who's lived overseas for a long time, is it a particular American pathology, this phenomenon of young men, often teenagers, who seem to have this absolutely murderous extraordinary, violent, savage thing that gets into their heads that makes them want to go and shoot a lot of people, especially shoot school kids, especially fourth graders. Is it, is it a, I mean, I know that you're going to, there are, there have been other cases around the world, of course, of this famously, but it does seem to be peculiarly American beyond the availability of guns. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not exclusively American and it's a pathology that I think American culture may exaggerate. It seems to come from an experience of profound disappointment, among other things. And I think that our culture, the way we talk about ourselves, especially the way we used to talk about ourselves, leads people who live in the United States to believe that life is going to be good. And then especially once you get into adolescence and perhaps early adulthood, it's not all good. In fact, sometimes it's dreadful. And there's a strange impulse to externalize your own misery. And I think within that disappointment as well, it's just this spite, like I don't know what else to call it. You know, a lot of these kids feel underappreciated and some of them have delusions of grandeur and others are not recognizing their great wonderfulness. And therefore, they're going to show you, they're going to show you how really powerful they are. And you're going to be sorry you didn't notice them before because you're sure going to notice me now. I don't think that gun control is an easy answer to that pathology. In fact, in this instance, and also in Sandy Hook, the sense is that both those shooters tried to come up with the worst thing that they could possibly do. That it's like the perfect opposite of trying to please. These incidents were contrived to be hideous. And It's almost as if, well, you know, inviting widespread hatred is better than being ignored. One of the challenges, I think, from the mental health perspective is always identifying, there are lots and lots and lots of troubled kids in America and indeed around the world, and many more, unfortunately, after two years of the pandemic and lockdowns, who go through terrible anxiety and depression and bipolarity and schizophrenia and all kinds of mental conditions. But only a tiny, tiny fraction of those is ever going to walk into a school with an AR-15 and kill, you know, a dozen or more kids. And it seems to me that part of the problem with the red flag issue and identifying these people is is if people are going to be encouraged to alert the authorities every time one of their teenage kid has a, you know, has an episode or is profoundly, you know, going through a period of anxiety or even expressing a desire to commit violence, we're going to have an awful lot of police work to be done that is actually going to be of no value. How do you, you know, I mean, again, you wrote this terrific novel from the perspective of a mother in particular. What does a parent do? It's, it's so against the grain of motherhood and fatherhood to report your child because you think he may go off and kill a lot of people. How do parents and family members 
and others who encounter people with these problems, what are they supposed to do? Well, I think one of the dangers of these very high-profile incidents is overreaction. That certainly happened in the 1990s when we had a whole spate of school shootings. And there was overreaction on an institutional level and on a personal one. Any kid who seemed a little weird, a little off, and you know, that's a broad category, started attracting the worst kind of attention. And we started turning our schools into fortresses so that, you know, you'd have metal detectors. And I gathered these lockdown drills for active shooters are now installed in 95% of the schools in the United States. And I think that's a real loss. My kids do them. I still have one daughter left in high school in New York, and they have regular lockdown drills. They have a plan. And sorry, anyway, that that is a common feature of now of education in America. Well, statistically, the alarm is disproportionate because these incidents are still very rare. They don't seem that way because they get so much publicity. And of course, we just went through, you know, two within a week of slightly different characters. And so it just seems like it's happening all the time. But it's a population of closing on 340 million people, and that includes a lot of disturbed folks. Is there any worth in sort of trying to examine what's gone wrong in terms of moral education, the decline maybe of religious belief, the decline of what we might call rather sort of hackneyed way traditional value? I mean, is that something that's gone wrong in the last 30 years that is creating so many of these alienated youths with apparently either no moral compass or an extraordinarily twisted moral compass? Is there some broader societal cause that we can look to to perhaps look for a remedy? You know, apropos of your own column this week, I'd argue that while I am sympathetic with the impulse, our compulsion to draw some kind of lesson from these incidents is to be resisted. It's finding too much meaning in them. I'm afraid they don't mean very much. Okay, you know, I support somewhat more restrictive laws on buying a gun. But even when they're passed in democratic states, they don't have that much effect on what actually happens. And even the urge to make big cultural conclusions about what's wrong with us may be in error. I think there's a place for reducing them to the meaningless that this was an act of nihilism in Uvalde and uh, from someone who was deeply unhappy, who took that misery out on others. And I'm not sure you have to take it beyond that. I mean, I am also perfectly capable when I need to pass comment on these things of uh, coming up with broad generalizations. I, I made one just earlier this afternoon, which I think, and that's, I think there's probably something to it which is that contrary to the nature of the United States earlier in its life, I'm afraid we have cultivated a culture of self-pity so that we encourage people to feel sorry for themselves. I'm sure this fellow in Uvalde felt terribly sorry for himself. Um, and in fact, there was a pattern in the school shootings that I studied from the 1990s. They all felt like victims, and in feeling like victims, felt free to make victims of other people. And I think that that with all the identity politics and we're all competing with each other as to who's more oppressed, and who suffers more, who's been more abused. We're elevating that suffering. We're elevating victimhood. And that encourages a handful of people to embrace that status 
and take revenge. That's a very interesting point. And talk more about that, if you would, because I think it is, you know, it's so ironic that in a country that was built on the idea of sort of resilience and, you know, survival in the face of extraordinary adversity, no country has probably been more successful at rewarding success and achievement. And these are many ways the sort of defining characteristics of America. And as exactly as you say, whatever went wrong in the last decade or two, it seems that the quickest route to success in America and to fame and fortune is to establish yourself as a victim, whether it is the sort of, forgive me, sort of absurd spectacle of someone like Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, you know, one of the most privileged women in the world, presenting herself as a kind of a, you know, now enjoying sort of huge success in this country on the back of her claims of victimhood to all these, say, these identity groups, you know, not one doesn't suggest for a minute there aren't real victims in this country who really do suffer. But it is extraordinary that that now seems like everybody wants to be a victim. That's the sort of root of cultural, political opportunity. Well, we celebrate weakness and we encourage people to find their strength in weakness, that that's their calling card. That's how they're going to get what they want. And this uh, whole mass shooting thing is a shortcut to fame itself. If what you really care about is people knowing your name, people having noticed you're alive, people pouring over, you know, the nature of your life and your relationship to your mother or your grandmother, then the easiest way to do it is to shoot as many people as possible. <laughs> and it's a lot harder to make your mark because you got a PhD and went to work in a lab and discovered a cure for pancreatic cancer. We've got to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll have more with Lionel Shriver. Stay with us. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Welcome back. We're talking with novelist and commentator Lionel Shriver about cultural issues, cancel culture, and the wider culture war that America seems to be in. Let's talk about the wider cultural context we find. So you've written, you've written very incisively in many publications around the world about the sort of various phenomena that, for want of a better word, we could call cancel culture, sort of extreme authoritarian intolerance on the part of the, the kind of the, the hegemonic cultural left. How did this come about, do you think? Again, I'm old enough to remember when the left was the voice of the genuinely the marginalized and the oppressed. You didn't always have to agree with it, but that's kind of what they stood for. It now seems that, it, in, again, in their cultural dominance that they have, in the dominance of the institutions, academia, media, Hollywood, all of this, that they actually are now the dominant voices and they are trying to silence the voices of those that otherwise wouldn't be heard. How did this come about? Oh, I can only suppose that it has something to do with the so-called revolution in the 1960s. And I'd be on the tail end of that generation. But at least that started out as, among other things, a celebration of liberty and big on free speech, big on getting rid of laws against obscenity, for example. You remember that expression, let it all hang out. The people just a little bit older than me wanted to be able to do whatever they wanted, right? That we no longer had any strictures on sexual behavior and drug taking was great. And, you know, okay, it had its downside. 
but it was at least a getting out of boxes and expansion of possibilities. And now the same people and a little bit younger, they've gone through the institutions and now they're in charge. And, you know, all, well, all revolutions contain the seeds of their own destruction, right? So rather than complain about being oppressed, they are the oppressors. There has been this bizarre, complete turnabout during our lifetimes on who advocates freedom of speech, for example. The left believes in total social control. And one of the things that interests me about that is that the big divide between the left and the right has conventionally been how they view human beings. And the left has historically been much more optimistic about human nature, that the most problems, most bad things that people do can be solved if you just put them in the right circumstances and you lead them in the right direction. All people are fundamentally good and want justice and will treat other people well and won't take advantage of systems like welfare because they naturally want to work. All these optimistic assumptions about people. And on the other hand, there's the right that thinks, no, the only way to control human behavior is to make what you want them to do to be in their self-interest. So the right assumed that people were selfish and if given a chance would take an advantage of other people. Well, they both have a point, but they've completely changed places. And the left is now very cynical about human nature and believes that unless we are completely controlled, unless everything out of our mouths is vetted, we will do nothing but spout bigotry and hatred. And we need all these rules in place to control our natural malice. And I find that a fascinating transformation. We've got this situation where we've got this sort of hegemonic kind of cultural ideology, if you like, that basically holds in contempt, actually not even in contempt, but holds in fierce, fierce condemnation, sort of pretty well everything that the kind of, you know, the, what we, again, we growing up thought of as kind of the West and what the West has achieved. Now, again, no one's here to defend slavery or some of the excesses of colonialism. By the way, I never grew up with it. I was never taught that slavery or colonialism was, well, slavery obviously was, was evil, but I was never taught that colonialism was a unmixed benefit. It was always a very complicated story. But we are now demanded to subscribe to this idea that everything, the whole thing, the baby, the bathwater, everything that the West has stood for, for you know at least a good couple of thousand, two and a half thousand years, needs to be thrown away. You, know, you probably followed this, what, what happened with this professor at Princeton, basically been fired on a sort of trumped up charge. But his offense is really to object to the prevailing you know, hegemony of the sort of Black Lives Matter movement and everything that that wants to do in universities. How did that come about? How did we go in a space of, well, 50 years, two generations from essentially kind of believing that what the West had achieved was extraordinary in terms of human civilization to being required now to believe if you want a job in any of these places that it's actually an unmitigated evil? Well, this sounds counterintuitive, but I locate this urge to destruction in complacency, which in turn is rooted in prosperity. I think people feel too secure. It's only when you think that everything is going to stay the same, really, that you feel free to tear apart the very institutions on which you personally rely. It's completely insensible 
for Americans to argue against the integrity or even the very existence of the country they live in and need to be functional for their own interest, right? So I would locate it in they don't expect to succeed. They actually grew up thinking that these institutions were impregnable and therefore they can march down the street and burn stuff down, but it'll all get built back up again and everything will be fine. And they'll still get their iPhone updates. All these people who claim to want to bring down capitalism are personally heavily reliant on capitalism and still want to go to the supermarket and buy dim sum in the freezer aisle. It's because they don't expect success and because they misperceive their own society as somehow built impregnably out of stone. And I think that we don't realize, and I certainly didn't realize when I was younger, how fragile civilizations are and how hard they are to build, how hard traditions are to build, how hard integrity is to maintain, and how easy it is to rip it all apart. So I think what a lot of people on the left don't realize is that they have more power than they think. And if they do manage to effectively destroy the United States, they'll be sorry. And I find it very interesting, this complacency thing, because I just don't think that anyone who argues, for example, to defund the police, I do not believe those people want to live in a world where you cannot pick up the phone and say, someone is trying to break into my house, please help me. It's a very good point. It reminds me a little bit, slightly different context, but but Amy Chua, the Yale law professor who herself is now under fire, wrote a book uh, some time ago about globalization. And she characterized the, the attitude of the rest of the world to the United States and sort of the impact of American-led globalization. The attitude could be summed up, she said, in this phrase, in this paraphrase, which is, America, get out and take me with you. They want to preserve all of the greatness and all of the quality of <laughs> life that the Western values have brought them, while supposedly at the same time tearing them down. Do you think, Lionel, that maybe, or am I just being, you know, hopelessly Panglossian here, but do you think maybe we may have passed the tide maybe turning, that maybe we've sort of hit peak woke? You are seeing people take a bit of a stand on some of this transgender stuff. We've seen this, you know, Netflix initially flirting with sort of stopping people like Dave Chappelle, but actually they're not doing it. And then Ricky Gervais coming out with his comedy last week. We've seen some other attempts to maybe push back here and there for the first time against this sort of woke cultural revolution. Do you think the tide's turning or am I being too optimistic? You know, I have no idea. It's interesting to me how many times I've heard that question posed. And it's posed year after year, and it seems as if nothing can get worse, so it will have to get better, and then things get worse. And I'm afraid that this is not a tide we're going to turn quickly, and because this ideology has so sunk its claws into the United States on an institutional level. You know, it's just, it's both who's in charge, who's in positions of power over other people, what the rules are, in addition to what the, the conventions are. We may be coming up on a ruling by the Supreme Court soon on this issue, but meanwhile, you know, affirmative action has run amok. And it is now commonplace for institutions to aspire to hire people in considerable excess of that group's percentage in the population. So getting past that kind of stuff 
when it's really become ingrained, it's going to take a long time. I hope you're right. And I think we shouldn't be, if you will, complacent on our side because it's a long fight. And I take whatever opportunities I do, as I'm sure you do, to do that pushback. But it takes willingness to take risks, to stick your neck out, to say things you're not sure you're supposed to say. I just watched the Ricky Gervais special on Netflix and I I thought it was hilarious. But I also thought it was politically important. I couldn't believe he used the word retard. (laughs) He actually set out, he must have done this purposefully. He managed to say something offensive about every group there is. Religious believers and conservatives. You know, he's a comic. He's supposed to be able to do that. Nobody gets upset about that, of course. Oh, yeah. He went for everybody. And if we don't have comics doing that, then the Overton window narrows, and it's not possible to do that. And that's true across the board about free speech issues. You have to use free speech. It doesn't mean you say things you don't believe, but it does mean that you say things that you do believe that you are hesitating about whether or not this is okay to say out loud. The biggest success of the whole woke movement has been installing a fearful self-censorship in just about everybody. And so much of it is about language and about drawing laws and rules about language. You just mentioned there, you know, Ricky Gervais getting away with using the word retard, which is almost unsayable in not only in polite, but in any kind of conversation in this country. It's so striking to me how these sort of cultural authoritarians in this very Orwellian way, you know, a bit of a cliche to cite Orwell, but it's absolutely true, are sort of redefining language to the point of literally essentially forbidding us from using certain words, the N-word, which we're obviously not, you know, not allowed to say, even when we are using it in a purely kind of descriptive and not in any way, not in a remotely offensive or abusive way. I was amused to see that the Associated Press, when they wrote recently about the Buffalo shooter that we had a couple of weeks ago, the guy who shot a lot of the white supremacists who shot a lot of black people in Buffalo, he published this thing, which he called a manifesto. Associated Press said they weren't going to call it a manifesto because a manifesto was a sort of a, a document that was laid out with a sort of set of kind of reasonable propositions. This was a screed or a rant. You know, it's all well, very well understood. They are trying to constrain thought by constrained language. And as a writer, and I know you rebel against that because I've read a lot of what you write about it. Do you find that a, that's very, very concerning to me? Um, Yeah. As a writer, I don't want to be told what words I can and cannot use. And I resent it. I use the words I want to, uh, but I don't have complete control because publisher can tell me that they don't want to print that. So to cite an example of what I consider utterly absurd, though it's now, again, it's been installed as a convention and one that I would be quite willing to break is the ban on the word slave, which, and the logic somehow is that you can't allow a word like that to express their humanity and therefore to violate their humanity. They were more than slaves. They were human beings who were enslaved. So you have to talk about them as enslaved people. I'm sorry, I found the logic absurd. We use all kinds of nouns that refer to human beings, and it doesn't mean that you are reduced to that. I am a Londoner. That doesn't mean I don't have political views, I don't have a profession, that I don't have hobbies that I pursue. It's not all I am. But by the same logic, you would say Lionel is a person who lives in London, right? So it endangers all nouns that apply to people. 
And I'm not willing to do that. And, you know, we're seeing this spread. I predicted it would. So it's duly starting to demonize all kinds of nouns. You can't talk about the obese anymore. You're supposed to talk about people living with obesity, which is long and unwieldy and ridiculous. You know, I refuse to comply. And as long as magazines like The Spectator will print the obese or, you know, he was a slave, then I'm going to continue to write it. Another example, which I find very striking, again, it's not just the sort of the insistence on using particular words or forms of words. It's actually the idea that if you don't do that, you're somehow, you're really guilty of racism. A good example of that is the insistence on the capitalization of being black. Now, a lot of publications do that. Look, if you want to capitalize the word being black, that's fine. I understand the historical context for it and all of that and not capitalize W in white or whatever. I don't think there's any logic for it. I don't think there's any logic for it aside from pandering. It's purely pandering. And and if you look at it in print, it looks ridiculous, especially in comparison to other colors when they are not capitalized. I can see that if you're going to be that way, go ahead, capitalize white, capitalize brown. But it looks ridiculous in a sentence when you're talking about white, brown, and black people. And only the black is capitalized. What I was going to say is an example of how sort of intolerant we become and how we've used these sort of verbal devices to redefine concepts like racism so that if you don't capital I've literally been accused by people you know of not if I don't capitalize the B in black of sort of being racist now being racist I think you know growing up I understood what a racist was somebody was racist was somebody who thought that there was you know inherent racial characteristics and that white people were inherently superior to black people and or indeed the other way around because let's face it racism uh, can be a two-way or a multi-way street but now we've we've so defined it so that unless you're an anti-racist unless you are subscribing to all these nostrums of people like Ibram Kendi, and unless you are capitalizing the B in black, you're a racist. Yeah. Well, you know, this is all about obedience. This is about obedience and ceding power over your own language to others. And these are not people that I want to give power over my language. And I do not acknowledge their authority. This is an authority which is assumed, and it is also an authority which we collectively give the people who are coming up with this dumb stuff, right? And the only way to take that authority back is to defy it. And therefore, to risk getting yourself into trouble, including being called a racist because you won't capitalize the B in black. Final question, because we are unfortunately, very unfortunately out of time. I do want to ask you, as an American, you know, who's lived in London for a long time, who looks, obviously comments, looks very closely at what's going on in America, and you've seen what the country's been going through the last few years, you've seen the polarization, you've seen, you know, the last 10 years, again, the increasing polarization, the social media polarization, the political polarization. We've seen the, the Obama years, the Trump years. How bad do you think it is? Are you fundamentally optimistic that America, you know, and I always say to my friends who are doubters, look, America's been through some pretty terrible periods in its past. Go back to 1968 and look at that and compare that with today. And it was it was in many ways a lot worse. But how bad do you think this polarization, this mutual hostility, and I don't think it's sometimes too large to call it hatred, this mutual hatred of political, sort of warring political factions, how bad is it? Is it terminal? Or do you think, as an American fundamentally America will in the, you know, infamous, famous words of Winston Churchill, country that, you know, always does the right thing, but only after exhausting every other alternative. Are you optimistic or as you look at it, are you worried? Well, I can easily imagine a situation whereby that polarization melts away in the face of an external threat, which is serious enough 
that our differences start to seem petty. Although I don't especially relish imagining the kind of external threat that would be big enough to bring that about. I think in the short term, it matters fantastically what happens in the next two elections, especially 2024. I've been very public about the fact that I am not a Trump supporter. He is poisonous for the body politic, and I don't want to see him back in power. And I think that if it did work out that way, we'd be into for a very rough ride for the rest of this decade. On the other hand, you know, it's a while from here to there, and I see someone like DeSantis coming up in Florida, and that gives me genuine hope that Trump may have had his day. I meet Republicans who tell me that while they supported him previously, that they're ready to move on, and that makes me very hopeful. Obviously, the Democrats wouldn't like it, but if we got a sane, competent Republican in the White House able to reverse some of the more irresponsible policies of this administration. Yeah, I think we might get it together. I'm not that pessimistic. I am very pessimistic if, for example, we end up with Trump versus Kamala Harris in 24, which would throw me into total paralysis. I am not someone who believes that not voting is a form of voting. It's pure cowardice, but I picture myself just cowering in the corner and whimpering. Amen. Well, Lionel Shriver, novelist, commentator, trenchant defender of free speech, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of Free Expression. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thanks very much for listening. Please do join us again next week, and we'll have another deep exploration of the important issues that drive our world. Thank you very much, and goodbye. Apollo is working to ensure a bright, bold future, financing solutions to some of the most complex challenges the world is facing. Apollo, investing in tomorrow, today. Learn more at Apollo.com.